0: to be clear about this. Everything I'm about to say is my opinion. Nothing here is to be construed as anything remotely promulgated by the United States government as its opinion or its realities. It's solely my opinion. I had uh, had an outline. I had a show. As you can see from the video, it's pretty foggy here today. And As I started putting things together, it got out of hand real fast, and what was supposed to be a short 5-minute, 15-minute condensed thing about things turned into, good lord, um, an all-out discussion about command and control of nuclear war, and the deeper I dug, the more I realized that, oh my god, there's no way I'm going to do this in a few minutes, so I'm kind of junking the outline and I hope what I have to say will make sense. My wife asked me last night, she said, are you worried? I'm not worried. Not in the, not in the sense of it's keeping me up at night. That's, that's not what's happening here. I am concerned. And then I started texting Bill and Rod and, cause I wanted to get in my own head what it was that I'm concerned with. What What is it that's weighing on my mind that is causing me to go, yeah, I am concerned about some things. Um, there is, of course, this idea that, well, Putin has threatened to use nuclear weapons. Now, again, I don't read it that way. I read it somewhat differently. I read it as he's simply stating what I call neo-Soviet doctrine. And so I'm not as concerned with that. However, comma, with the escalations of things that are happening, and now we're learning that NATO is going to send jets to Ukraine, Russia sees that as a provocation. Their exact words were, we see that as an act of war. Uh, the, The economic warfare that's going on, I'm concerned because Those are the kinds of measures that make people desperate, and desperate people do crazy things. That's the bottom line. And so when I think about am I worried, I'm no more worried than I was in 1986, but I'm a lot more concerned about things. 1986, of course, I was a ballistic missile fire control technician, second class, aboard USS Michigan. and. I worked primarily in what was known as the Missile Control Center, which was the place where the computers were that controlled targeting and launching of, at that time, Trident 1 missiles. Uh, later, I would be trained in the Poseidon system and very much enjoyed that system. I, I really liked the Poseidon system. Uh, it wasn't that I didn't like Trident, but Poseidon was so much more interesting. It just was. Now, when you Consider the things that we were involved with. I need you to keep in mind two concepts here. Need to know and technical knowledge. Just because you know something doesn't mean you need to know it. Okay. This was Edward Snowden's, um, well, no, it wasn't his story, but the fact that I know something doesn't mean that I have a need to know it. Legally, it doesn't mean that I'm required to know it. Keep in mind that My security clearance long ago expired. And so I have no need to know things that, frankly, I know. And because of my experience, I can watch things happening and nobody tells me. Nobody says, hey, Dave, this is what's going on. I can look at it and go, well, I know what's going on. That's knowing, but no need to know. I have technical knowledge of things, but my technical knowledge in these things was obtained properly and with the appropriate clearances. This was Edward Snowden's crime, is that he obtained technical knowledge without proper authorization to do so. It's a big difference. So if you keep those two concepts in mind, you'll understand that what I'm saying to you today is purely opinion. There is nothing here that violates my need to know. Everything I'm gonna say here is open source information. You can find it on the internet. You can find it in books not telling you anything that isn't there. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. When we talk about nuclear weapons and command and control of a nuclear war, and this, of course, is the theory is that if we back Putin into a corner, he might, uh, well, he has reserved the right to use nuclear weapons. So you start running into what does that mean? And we have in our heads this idea of mutual assured destruction in an all-out exchange where everybody fires off everything they have at each other and essentially eviscerates the world. This is of course, it, it plays well in the media and it plays well in our, our psyche because it, it makes uh, it, it's the movie, you know, war games. The only winning move is not to play. Right. But therein lies the problem because how do we define winning in the context of a nuclear war. The reality of it is, is that every government that has weapons has an idea for what they're going to do to win a nuclear war. And they won't talk about it. In fact, they've made a point of not talking about it. For our own country, our nuclear targeting strategies through the years under Truman, we had a monopoly, so we didn't have to worry about it. And we believed in those days that nuclear weapons were most valuable against cities because the delivery systems were so inaccurate. Under President Eisenhower, we began, we began to move to counterforce. Soviet nuclear weapons had become a concern, and massive retaliation was the public doctrine. That's what we told people in the, in the media was, well, if they shoot at us, we're, gonna, we're just going to overwhelm them in response. Under Kennedy and Johnson later, we, we moved to what was known as a flexible response where we put a public face on it of mutual assured destruction. But privately we began to move towards a war fighting stance known as counterforce, which we retained as an option. Things were a little muddled under Nixon and Ford, but when President Carter came into office, President Carter redefined our nuclear policy our stand, our nuclear stance is what I'm trying to say. In a very controversial document known as PD-59, he had this to say. PD-59 sought to have a nuclear force posture that ensured a high, high degree of flexibility, enduring survivability, and adequate performance in the face of enemy actions. If deterrence failed, the United States must be capable of fighting successfully so that an adversary would not achieve his war aims, when, and would suffer costs that are unacceptable. To make that feasible, PD-59, President, Presidential Directive 59, called for the pre-planned nuclear strike options and capabilities for rapid deployment of target plans against such key target categories as military and control targets, including nuclear forces, command and control, stationary and mobile military forces, industrial facilities that supported the military. Moreover, the directive stipulated strengthened command and control communication systems ourselves. It went on to say that the, the architects of the PD-59 envisioned the possibility of a protracted nuclear war. That is not a, not what we, we we think about. We think about this all-out exchange that lasts about an hour. But they were thinking in terms of a protracted war that avoided escalation to all-out conflict. According to uh, the Colonel Odom's memorandum, Colonel Odom was the um, military advisor to Uh, Brzezinski, rapid escalation was not likely because national leaders would realize, quote, how vulnerable we are and how scarce our nuclear weapons are, unquote. He's referring to both sides. They would not want to waste them on non-military targets and days and weeks will pass as we try to locate worthy targets of our nuclear weapons. Now, this is not what you've been led to believe. And this was American nuclear doctrine in the 1970s. When Carter was in office, we were still deploying aboard submarines certain kinds of missiles. We were deploying, uh, at, at that point, we were actually deploying the Polaris missile and the Poseidon missile, and the Trident missile was just coming online. The Trident missile was, well, I don't even really know how to say it. The Trident missile. Was said to me to be the most accurate missile ever built. In point of fact, um, it was explained to me at one point like this if you went to Yankee Stadium and you looked down on top of Yankee Stadium and you shot at Yankee Stadium with a Polaris missile, you would hit, you would hit the footprint of Yankee Stadium. That's, I mean, it's accurate over. X number of miles, but 2,500 miles or so, but not accurate enough to do the things that Carter wanted to do. The Poseidon system, the system I was trained on, you would hit the infield. You, you could probably hit the field of the, uh, at Yankee Stadium at the, at the nominal ranges that, that the missile had, which is pretty good, but it's still not what you need to do the things that the Carter administration wanted to do. The Trident missile, it was explained to me, you could hit second base. And by hitting second base, well <laughs> that was going to be a much um a much different thing because now all of a sudden you had what was known as counterforce capabilities. Counterforce capabilities means that you can take out specific things on the ground of your opponent. You can take out Soviet targets Specifically, hardened missiles or command and control communication systems, or what we call a C 3D cap. And this is amazing. This gave the United States in the early 1980s and into the late 1980s under Ronald Reagan and later George Bush a tremendous advantage. In fact, the Trident warheads were more accurate than most land-based missiles. I could go into why I'm not going to, but if you think about it, you can probably figure it out. Um, Land-based missiles are highly accurate because they're stable and they don't move around. These Trident missiles, the C-4, the Trident-1 missiles, were so accurate that they gave them the ability, unprecedented among SLBMs, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, to threaten hardened missile silos and command bunkers in the Soviet Union. And their extended range allowed their submarines to patrol our submarines, to patrol almost anywhere in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, making detection extremely difficult, which, again, that's the whole Johnny Walker thing, is he gave them where we were. So it was this counterforce ability, this ability, this, this ability of the United States to achieve this thing that caused the Soviet Union to spend itself into oblivion trying to, trying to counter it, and they couldn't. And eventually, the Soviet Union went bankrupt and lost control of things, and the walls came down, and the Soviet Union fell. Now, the question is, here we are, you know, 30 years off, 40 years on from that, and we're back to this problem, commanding and controlling a nuclear war. Vladimir Putin is a KGB guy. He's not not a military guy, nor is he really, in the strictest of senses, a politician. He's a KGB. He's a counterintelligence agent and a foreign intelligence agent. That's his background. And so now all of a sudden, this is the man who is nominally or notionally in charge of the Soviet Union the neo soviets and their weaponry. The question is, and I go back to this question that I've asked before, how do you define winning in the context of a nuclear war? Vladimir Putin may very well fall into the category of PD-59. He may very well fall into that category of he doesn't, want, he, he doesn't mind necessarily using nuclear weapons, but he doesn't necessarily want to escalate it into full exchange either. Well, how does that reply? How, does that, how do we respond to that? Going back to what I said about the Trident missiles, they're accurate. And this is the C1, folks, the, C, the Trident 1, the C4 missile. This was 40 years ago when I was doing it. This is not the missile we use today. The missile we use today is the Trident D5 missile. I couldn't even imagine what its capabilities are. I, I have no clue. I have no knowledge. I have no technical knowledge. I have no need to know their accuracy, the Trident-1 missiles, gave them the ability to threaten hardened missile silos and command bunkers in the Soviet Union. That's 40 years ago. Jump ahead 40 years and just extrapolate the capabilities that we may have now. What scares me, what concerns me, is the nuclear posture of the United States. If... For some reason, we decide, Our intelligence tells us, that Vladimir Putin is about to use nuclear weapons. We, apparently, have the capability to threaten missile silos and command bunkers in a potential first strike. Now, remember what I said about previous nuclear policies. We've always been told that that was not the case. But remember that from as early as Eisenhower, counterforce became our strategy. We tell the public, that's massive retaliation, mutual assured destruction. But even under PD-59, we made it clear that we didn't necessarily want to do that. We wanted to go after high value targets in a limited type exchange, which might, necessa- might lead necessarily to a limited, what, was, what would be called a limited exchange. Which, I don't really care which side of this you're on. (laughs) That's going to be bad for somebody's day. And it's going to mess up a lot of things. This is what concerns me. I'm not worried about it yet. I got a feeling I might be soon. But for the moment, I'm concerned about our leadership. And whether or not our leadership is wise enough to play the nuclear poker game with a KGB agent who's not, it's not his background. To him, these may just be weapons to threaten people with, as opposed to, I don't know, negotiate with. That's what worries me, concerns me. Does it scare me yet? Mm. Well, let's wait and see what happens and if NATO gets involved and Article 5 gets invoked, if that happens, All bets will be off.